0: Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
1: Aaron, thanks very much. Good evening. New York State today saw its biggest jump in COVID-related deaths and new evidence that the virus is disproportionately killing black Americans. The president expressed his concern today over that fact, and we'll talk more about why this is happening to black Americans. There was potentially some good news. The director of the CDC is saying because of ongoing social distancing efforts, we may end up seeing fewer fatalities overall than some recent modeling projected. Here's what he said.
2: Even those models that were done, They assume that only about 50 percent of the American public would pay attention to the recommendations. In fact, what we're seeing is a large majority of the American public are taking recommendations to heart. And I think that's the direct consequence why you're seeing the numbers are going to be much, 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 much lower than would have been predicted by the models.
1: The president continued to use what's supposed to be a factual briefing by the coronavirus task force to rewrite the history of his administration's response. Today, he focused on a new target, the World Health Organization, perhaps out of legitimate concerns or perhaps as a way to provide cover for his own actions. The president is now saying that the WHO missed the pandemic.
3: World Health Organization, because they really are, uh, they called it wrong. They call it wrong. They really they missed the call. They could have called it months earlier. They would have known and uh, they should have known and they probably did know. So we'll be looking into that very carefully.
1: Not surprisingly, that is the exact opposite of what the president tweeted back in late February when he told Americans the coronavirus was under control. Quoting from the president's tweet, the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA. We are in contact with everyone at all relevant countries. CDC and World Health have been working hard and very smart. Stock market starting to look very good to me. The World Health Organization is certainly an easy target. They have repeatedly defended China's numbers and the regime's transparency, despite obvious concerns that we've been reporting on. The president, by focusing on the WHO, is following the lead of a number of other Republican politicians and media outlets.
4: The WHO needs to stop covering for them. Uh, I think Dr. Tedros needs to step down. Uh, We need to take some action to address this issue. It's just, it's irresponsible. Uh, It's unconscionable what they've done
0: here. Not only do I not want to fund the WHO, first, let's get the information. I can't imagine it's going to get any better than what we already know. Uh, But why why are we funding organizations that are lying to us? They just work for China, communist China.
1: Also today, the president suggested that he would withhold any American funding of the WHO. He then, moments later, claimed that he never said that. Take a look.
3: We're going to put a hold on money spent to the WHO. We're going to put a very powerful hold on it, and we're going to see. It's a great thing if it works, but when they call every shot wrong, that's no good. I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but we're going to look at it
1: president also today continued to spread falsehood about voter fraud as a reason not to have wider vote-by-mail efforts in the general election. Many Wisconsin voters are having to stand in line to vote today because the two separate court decisions by both its state and U.S. Supreme Courts that prevented Wisconsin from moving its election day, also from extending its deadline to receive mail-in ballots. Never mind the hypocrisy pointed out to the president that he himself voted by mail-in ballot. This is what he said.
5: You were highly critical of mail-in voting, mailing your mail-in ballots for voting. I think you mail-in a voting ago, is horrible. You voted by it's mail. Corrupt. I
3: think that mail-in voting is a terrible thing. I think if you vote, you should go. And even the concept of early voting is not the greatest, because a lot of things happen. But it's OK. But you should go and you should vote. I think you should go and you should vote. You look at what they do where they grab thousands of mail-in ballots and they dump it. I'll tell you what, and I don't have to tell you, you can look at the statistics, there's a lot of dishonesty going along with mail-in voting, mail-in
6: ballots.
1: He voted by mail in Florida. This is not a new talking point for the president. He, of course, has repeatedly, from the earliest days of his administration, pushed false conspiracy theories about voter fraud. They're not backed up by any reputable data.
3: They even want to try to rig the election at the polling booths. And believe me, there's a lot going on. People who died 10 years ago are still voting. Illegal immigrants are voting. So many cities are corrupt, and voter fraud is very, very common. All you have to do is go around, take a look at what's happened over the years, and you'll see. There are a lot of people, a lot of people, my opinion, and based on proof that Try and get in illegally and actually vote illegally.
1: I know maybe nobody cares that he's just continues to lie, but we're pointing it out. He's continuing to lie. This all comes on what may be the deadliest week in the pandemic so far. Today, we hit the highest number of deaths in a single day in the U.S., 1,736. For more on the pandemic, let's go to Nick Watt in Los Angeles. So, uh, Nick, let's talk about the latest just from hotspots around the U.S.
0: Well, Anderson, today we heard from the mayor of Boston. They are suffering a spike right now. You know, fully one third of their confirmed cases have come just within the past three days. There's now an overnight curfew in the city. Down in New Jersey, about a month ago, they had 11 confirmed cases. Tonight, that is nearly 45,000. And the governor thinks that people have been getting too close in the state parks, so he just closed them all. But the epicenter, Anderson, is still neighboring New York. Today in New York City, more than 800 deaths reported. That's triple yesterday's total. But here on the front line, the new case count in the state appears to be flattening.
7: For the past couple of days, discharging more patients uh, than we are admitting. But this is actually the time when we should redouble our
0: efforts. The battle's not over. The war goes on. The NYPD just announced a 13th member has now died from the virus, and more than 500 New York Fire Department personnel have it.
8: And I'm still getting EMTs
2: and medics called because they're upset. They they are upset they got sick because they're not out here. You know that's I mean I don't know what to say. I, I mean that's 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 who's taking care of you.
0: Nationwide, numbers still rising. A lot of the other parts of the country are not anywhere near flattening the curve. They're still
1: rising exponentially.
0: Michigan, one of few states keeping racial data. The black population there is around 14 percent, yet 40 percent of coronavirus deaths are in that black population. There's still a huge gap
2: between uh, races when it comes to health care, and this is
0: magnifying it. In Chicago, black people make up 30% of the population, but 72% of COVID deaths. In Louisiana, similar
5: numbers. They're dying more because they have their bodies, our bodies have borne the burden of Chronic disinvestment, active neglect in our communities, all of those insults on our bodies have given us more of these so-called pre-existing conditions. So once we're infected, we have more severe outcomes.
0: The administration is now looking to alight at the end of this tunnel.
6: Normal is going to be a different normal whenever we do reopen. We know that once we get a vaccine, we can get more back to the way we treat flu season.
0: They're watching how other countries gradually reopen. just hours ago. Severe lockdown restrictions were lifted in Wuhan. People are now allowed to leave. And four months after the first case in that city, China, now claiming a whole day without a single COVID-19 death nationwide. Our latest daily death toll Monday, 1,332 Americans reported dead.
1: How about California, or what's been going on?
0: Well, some encouraging signs out here, Anderson. The governor says that the curve is bending but stretching, so our peak is probably going to be in May sometime. And, you know, here in L.A. County, they've designated this stay-at-home week. We're being told not to even go to the grocery store if we can avoid it because we're a few weeks out from that peak. The hope is to keep that peak as low as possible. Meantime, California is now shipping ventilators to other states, New York, Nevada, uh, Maryland, uh, D.C., places that need them now. But the governor is making it clear that these ventilators, it's a loan. It's not a gift. It's a loan because at some point, he says, we hope not, but California might need them back. Anderson.
1: Nick, I appreciate it. Nick, thanks very much. Stay safe. Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Uh, Sanjay, obviously New York remains the biggest hotspot. Governor Cuomo is saying the numbers of hospitalizations has plateaued, though the city has just seen its largest one-day increase in deaths. I'm wondering what you make of those two developments.
9: Well, I, I think both those things um, c- could be happening simultaneously. It can make sense. I mean, obviously, it's tragic that the debts continue to go up. Uh, what you're looking for, I think, in that, in that regard is uh, the pace at which these numbers are increasing. And, and, and keep in mind that whatever we're seeing right now, in some ways, as, as a, a doctor described it to me earlier today, it's sort of like a Polaroid picture. At the time you take the picture, it takes a while to develop. So we're seeing a, a sort of lagged picture from two or three weeks uh, behind. If, if first, someone has a confirmed infection, and then a small percentage of those people will need, need to go to the hospital, and then a, a smaller percentage uh, may end up succumbing to the illness. So uh, if hospitalizations are going down now, that could suggest that we should see a decrease in, in, in deaths, thankfully, later on, within a couple weeks or so.
1: We're, we're going to get more into the, the models and projections for the virus in just a few minutes. There does seem to be some indication for the head of the CDC that the number of deaths could ultimately be lower. Than what what the White House had uh, had you know said just recently of anywhere from 100,000 to 240,000, uh, yeah. and we know. And even when they said that, they said, "Look, the models, as more data comes in, are liable to to change."
9: You know, I I heard Dr. Redfield's comments about this and, you know, there are lots of different models out there, as you know, Anderson, so I wasn't sure which one he was referring to specifically because he said the models that he he was looking at were predicated on 50% of the country sort of being in stay-at-home orders. And if it was more than that, the number should come down. I think all the models that you and I have looked at have really been based on much more strict stay-at-home orders, in fact, the whole country. And that's how they got to this uh, this 100,000 number. so I'm not I'm not exactly sure which numbers he was referring to, but you know the, the models Anderson really have been um, you know th- there's all sorts of different models, and as they say the saying goes you know all models are wrong. Uh, but some are useful. And I think that's yeah. what we're sort of looking at here, trying to draw the best information out of these models. I think that the uh, the models out of University of Washington, and we're going to talk to Chris Murray later on, basically suggest that, uh, you know, you have to keep the stay-at-home orders uh, until the end of May in order to be able to get to, the, to this number, which is still jarring, but uh, close to 100,000 people dying versus a higher number than that.
1: Yeah, I mean, all the models back up the scientific advice, which is staying at home is critically important. Social distancing is critically important. Um, We have to talk about the the, the disproportionate impact this virus is having uh, among black Americans, people of color. Um, Obviously, there are longstanding inequalities uh, the way the medical establishment, you know, what happens to a Black American, when they go into a hospital, they are treated differently statistically than, uh, than, than others. We've seen this for a very long period of time. Access to, to medical mm-hmm. care, uh, you know, pre-existing conditions like diabetes, heart disease. Um, there are a lot of inequalities in the system uh, that an event like this bring to the fore.
9: Yeah, and and I think taking it even a step earlier than that, I mean, the reason that uh, blacks have so many uh, more pre-existing conditions is because of structure inequalities as well you know access to health care is one thing but living in areas where uh, you know there may be socio-economic disadvantages you live in food deserts you can't get healthy foods you know basic things like that uh, make it very challenging to to not develop some of these pre-existing conditions and then you know in the midst of all this you know there's been ina- inadequate testing the testing has been even more disproportionate when it when it comes to blacks and I think that the you know when, when you really look at the uh, the um, types of jobs um, you know, blacks are much more likely to have these frontline essential sort of jobs, you know, jobs, frankly, that are keeping the country running, you know, uh, transportation, food, uh, you know, delivery and logistics and, and, and all these types of things. But those are also jobs that are higher risk right now. So there's all these different factors that, that play into this. But I was, I was, despite that, knowing that, and you and I have covered these types of stories, I was still sort of stunned by the numbers. I mean, you know, cities that have a, a African-American population of 30%, and yet 72% of the deaths from COVID are, are, are among blacks. I mean, yeah. th- this is a really significant manifestation of these longstanding structural inequalities. And something's got to be done about it because, Anderson, we may run into a situation, hopefully not, but maybe we will, where where you know some of these precious resources may be rationed. And I hope these structural inequalities don't persist into that, that rationing as well, Anderson.
1: Yeah, Sanjay, uh, stay with us. I want to bring Jim Acosta to the White House and CNN's it chief political analyst, Gloria Borger. Uh, Gloria, the president continues to say things are... Uh, are untrue, uh, uh, the same things that are untrue at the podium day after day. He clearly is now focusing on the World Health Organization, and that's something he's sort of taking the lead from a lot of media folks uh, in conservative media and other uh, politicians.
5: He is, and uh, from Republican politicians, as you pointed out earlier, this is a president, as we all know by now, and we should be used to it, uh, who likes to distract. And what he is doing now is trying to rewrite history as we are living it. And in finding uh, a new enemy in the WHO, it's quite convenient for him. And let me point out, the WHO has not been perfect here, but he can say, aha. They are the tools of the Chinese, which is, of course, another convenient and popular enemy, and they are in cahoots, as he put it, and therefore he was not getting great information, uh, and that's a way of also saying, well, you know, while I was giving you bad information, it really, it really wasn't my fault. I mean, today Anderson, he called himself a cheerleader, and he keeps saying that, and I couldn't help but think, you know, real leaders aren't cheerleaders. Real leaders. Tell the country the truth and that is not what the president was doing and now he has a way to blame it on the world health organization
1: yeah i mean cheerleaders aren't calling plays coaches do that and that's sort of what you want right. somebody doing exactly uh, in a situation like that i mean there is a role for cheerleaders and it's great to have them that's in right. the game uh and making people feel good but when you want actually stuff done mm-hmm. uh you, you need coaches and you need uh, players you need people fighting this which is players. we have plenty of that Uh, Jim, uh, these memos from Peter Navarro, one in late January, warning that the White House, warning the White House about uh, coronavirus, saying it could evolve into a, quote, full blown pandemic. I just want to play what the president said today when he was asked if he saw those memos. Let's listen. Sure.
3: I didn't see him, but I heard he wrote some memos talking about pandemic. Uh, I didn't see him. I didn't look for him either. But that was about the same time as I felt that we should do it. That was about the same time that I closed it down.
1: I mean, he, he keeps referring to closing down flights from, you know, from Wuhan. Uh, you know, this has been looked at. Many thousands of people came in on flights for weeks after he allegedly shut everything
6: down. Right. Well, the president was saying he didn't know about this Peter Navarro memo, but that he was essentially following uh, some of the advice, uh, I guess, baked into that memo when he said uh, he was shutting down these flights coming in from China. But Anderson, uh, beyond that, there was another Peter Navarro memo that came on February 23rd, and it says uh, there's an increasing probability of a full-blown COVID-19 pandemic that could infect as many as 100 million Americans with a loss of life as uh, as many as 1.2 million souls. Uh, It was at that that time, Anderson, that the president was downplaying uh, the potential for loss of life in this country, and we can play a montage of that uh, right here. here. Here's what he had to say.
3: We have it very much under control in this country. Very interestingly, uh, we've had no deaths. We have a, uh, I mean, you know, we've had a great practice. We had, we had 12 at one point, and now they've gotten very much better. Many of them are fully recovered. The uh, coronavirus, which is, um, you know, very well under control in our country. We uh, have very few. The people are getting better. They're all getting better. There's a very good chance you're not going to die. Of the 15 people, the original 15, as I call them, uh, eight of them have returned to their homes, to stay in their homes until fully recovered. It's going to disappear. I mean, that's,
1: those, again, are, yeah. all the, those statements right. are all, you know, toward the end of February. That's, you know, scientists are already referring to, you know, February as the lost month for this administration when essentially, uh, you know, he had this happy talk um, while the virus was already here.
6: Uh, That's right, Anderson. And and we've cataloged this for for many weeks now as the president was making these kinds of uh, comments, downplaying uh, the pandemic, uh, putting out these rosy scenarios that it would be over by April. Uh, But, Anderson, it it is worth noting uh, that as the president has been demonizing the World Health Organization today, the the White House was relying on the World Health Organization from time to time, uh, you you know, saying that uh, the World Health Organization uh, was putting out uh, reliable information. Uh, The president cited the World Health Organization uh, in his address to the nation on March uh, 11th. And so the president was asked about this during the briefing, and he said, as Glory was just saying a few moments ago, when he was pressed on some of these comments that he has made, he said he just wanted to be a cheerleader for the country. The problem, Anderson, is that cheerleaders sit on the sidelines. He was not being a cheerleader throughout most of this, he was being a misleader. Uh, and I think this Navarro memo question has not been put to rest. The president said, well, he, he didn't see the memos, he wasn't looking for the memos, but we haven't gotten to the answer as to whether or not he was briefed on the memos, whether senior White House officials knew about the memos, people like Mick Mulvaney and so on. And so these memos still raise lots of questions and the president didn't put them to rest. Yeah. And look, the, the WHO, I
1: mean, has a long-standing problem. It's a huge bureaucracy, a lot of reasons, and certainly their, their attitude toward China. They pretend Taiwan doesn't even exist and, and ignore Taiwan's response to this coronavirus, which seems to uh, there's a lot of reasons to criticize them, but it's just interesting that Point. now the president has really uh, jumped on sure. top of this. Uh, Sanjay, That's stay right. with us. Uh, Jim, Gloria, uh, thank you very much. Still to come, more on the adjusted model that suggests fewer deaths than predicted just days ago. The director of an institute whose model is cited by the White House officials will join Sanjay and me to discuss what this means for the weeks and months ahead, and later, remembering the victims. The victims. I'll speak to the, uh, the widow, the wife of a man who passed away after he struggled to get both testing and care for the disease we've been talking about the deadly week ahead for the nation also how the administration and the cdc now believe that fatalities from this virus may be lower than estimated certainly good news on monday a model cited by the white house lowered its predictions for fatalities and number of hospital beds used the institute for health metrics and evaluation at the university of washington now projects 81,766 people will be killed over the next four months or will die over the next four months that's a drop of 12,000 in their prediction. It also expects 121,000 fewer hospital beds being used in that time. Joining us now is the director of the Institute, Dr. Chris Murray, and back with us is also Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Dr. Murray, can you just explain the new changes to your model? Because we've had you on before, and you've always pointed out as more information comes in, uh, as more data comes in, the numbers will change. Uh, why the lowering now?
2: So two key things uh, we've been able to incorporate with all the influx of of new uh, data in the United States. Uh, First, we found out a lot more about hospital practice. And so what we're seeing is that uh, hospitals, particularly in New York, but elsewhere in the country, are admitting fewer people compared to what the original data suggested, uh, you know, compared to every death that we see. They're putting fewer people into the ICU, and there's lower ventilator requirements. So that's brought down the sort of shortage estimates uh, quite a bit uh, because of that new data influx. And the other big news is that uh, we're seeing peaks in the epidemic in other places other than China, in Italy, in Spain. In fact, seven different regions have seen the epidemic peak and come down, and that really informs our models about the impact and the effectiveness of social distancing.
1: Dr. Murray, two questions: Do, do you know uh, way why the White House's numbers have been higher than yours? Uh, when your model was saying eighty thousand a while ago, that's when they came out with the one hundred thousand to two hundred forty thousand figure. Well, do you know why why their numbers have been higher? Um, and uh, and and also, what what? Uh, what are yours dependent on in terms of people abiding by stay-at-home orders and social distancing? How long do you bake? How long in your modeling is that expected to last for?
2: So in our models, we are building in the assumption that social distancing is going to stay in place till we hit the sort of threshold when we think the first wave is essentially over. And that's, we use a number, which is 0.3 deaths million people in the u.s so basically 60 deaths in the united states in a day would be that threshold and that should come uh, first week of june and so we're building in the assumption that social distancing is in place until then uh we will start to release hopefully later this week or or by the weekend uh what might happen if we take social distancing off to before then and we're pretty confident we'll just see a rebound uh, of the epidemic if, if that's what we're, w- was to happen.
1: Sanjay, do you, do you have questions for Dr. Murray?
9: Yeah, I, I'm curious. You know, so you talk about these uh, earlier peaks. And thank you, Dr. Murray, for all this work that you're doing on this. But you see these earlier peaks. Uh, people have become accustomed to this term flattening of the curve. If you see the peak earlier, you um, uh, th- does that also suggest the, the curve wasn't flattened? Because when, it, when it's flattened, it sort of extends out a, a, a longer period of, of time, right? Yeah, I don't like the expression flattening the curve.
2: That expression comes from models that suggested you really couldn't stop a wave. And it, it really was sort of a worst case scenario of trying to decrease the burden on the health services, but the ultimate burden would really be about the same most people would get infected and there would be huge fatalities in the country. What we're actually seeing now in eight communities, we think it's also happened here in King County and Snohomish County, we're seeing true peaks and the expectation that what happened in Wuhan, which is that you can bring the epidemic down to a very low level, uh, almost no transmission is possible. And we're pretty sure that's what's going to happen as long as we stick to the social distancing for the appropriate time.
1: Dr. Murray, that we heard from the head of the CDC, and we played at the top of the program. Uh, he was saying that the numbers are going to be lower than what the uh, the you know the 200,000 figure that the White House had talked about as, as being on the high end of possible what might possibly happen. He seemed to indicate that that modeling or some modeling uh, was based on only 50% of Americans really taking part in social distancing. Is that why the White House's numbers were 100,000 to Yours were in the 80,000 range?
2: You know, I don't know. We haven't been, We haven't seen their model. Uh, so they haven't shown you seen,
1: how they made their predictions?
2: No, we haven't seen that at all. And quite honestly, 50% social distancing, uh, we don't think that that would lead to curtailing the epidemic. Uh, it really needs to be, unless I don't understand that metric, but it really needs to be every state because it's gonna be very easy once, if some states you know, have a, uh, an epidemic that's still ongoing, other states have controlled it, to have reintroduction of the virus back into the, the states that have already gone through all the pain to, to get the epidemic under control. So it's not gonna work for the nation if we do it in some places and, and not others.
1: Sanjay, do you know why the White House doesn't share their like, the data behind their modeling?
9: Um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what we've heard them say is they're looking at lots of different models of which uh, um, Dr. Murray's is, is, is one of them, but the, his is the one that they've cited, obviously, a few times. But we don't know which models they're looking at. And frankly, you know, I also don't know, um, you know, all these models are built on assumptions, certain assumptions. And, you know, even, even more than the, the, the model sometimes, I'm not, I'm not sure w- which assumptions they're making to sort of feed the model as well. Um, it's a it's a big gray area when you look at these models in terms of, you know, the number of possible hospitalizations, the number of possible deaths. And uh, it's, it's pretty wide ranging as a result. But again, mm. I think it's Dr. Murray's model, which is the one that has, uh, you know, been been most cited by them.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Murray, uh, I echo Sanjay. We really appreciate all, all your efforts and, and being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sanjay, thanks as well. A day after President Trump lashed out when asked about an inspector general's report on problems at U.S. hospitals dealing with the pandemic, he effectively fired another inspector general. We'll have details of that when we continue.
3: 27 more flights are scheduled.
1: President Trump today effectively removed the inspector general who was supposed to have been in charge of overseeing the trillions of taxpayer dollars earmarked for pandemic relief. The man the president removed is Glenn Fine, who had been the acting IG at the Pentagon for four years, and before that was inspector general of the Justice Department for 11 years, and he'd served Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. Asked today why the president removed him, the president failed to give a clear reason and said, as he usually does, that he has a right to do it, which he certainly does. But he suddenly announced the inspector general for the EPA will now have the Pentagon job in addition to being the inspector general for the EPA and thereby removed Mr. Fine from the coronavirus oversight position. It was only a few days after the president fired the intelligence community inspector general, Michael Atkinson, whose report, who listened to the whistleblower and forwarded the whistleblower's report to Congress. And it was only yesterday that the president railed at a new report by the inspector general for the Health and Human Services Department that portrayed widespread problems in U.S. hospitals dealing with the pandemic. Among the report's findings, which was based on hundreds of interviews with doctors and hospital administrators around the country, quote, hospitals reported that they were unable to keep up with COVID-19 testing demands because they lacked complete kits and, and or the individual components and supplies needed to complete tests. And then there was this from the report. Hospitals reported that changing and sometimes inconsistent guidance from federal, state, and local authorities posed challenges and confused hospitals and the public. I wanna bring in now uh, Florida Congresswoman Donna Shalala who was head of HHS under President Clinton. Congresswoman, you ran HHS for eight years. I'm wondering what you make of the president now attacking the Inspector General report, which uh, when he attacked it, he hadn't really read it and didn't know anything about the official behind it, Um, but it was based just on interviews with doctors and hospitals around the country.
10: You know, he clearly didn't read it. I read the report. It's a very good report. It's consistent with what the media has been reporting around the country about the lack of supplies for hospitals. And it has some very interesting parts of it, of how creative the hospitals have been around the country in trying to get supplies. Uh, He should have read it. Um, It wasn't such a negative report as a guidance. It was a snapshot. Um, They captured the information between March 23rd and 27th, if I remember correctly. And uh, it's just a solid piece of work. It's only 30. Uh, Everybody should read it because it's a solid piece of work that tells us where we were at that point. Uh, Some things have improved since then. But let me explain why he he's railing against inspector generals. It is the one appointment he does not control. It's not that he can't nominate them or fire them, Mm -hmm. but they get to to the Congress directly. The IG legislation insists that the inspector generals are independent from the executive in the sense that they can report directly to the Congress without going through their cabinet secretaries and without going through the president. So I'm not surprised that this president, who is a control freak, doesn't uh, like IGs because of that legislation. They can go testify. They can report to committees. They can pick up the phone and um, and call a member of Congress. And they don't have to clear it through their cabinet officer or through the president.
1: Yeah, I mean, the president was suggesting the report was was politically motivated. Um, There's no excuse me. There's no evidence to suggest that the report had anything to do with politics. In fact, when the report starts, it, it says this is a snapshot and it's really just. Kind of looking for ways to improve things in the future it doesn't seem like it's an attack on this administration
10: no in fact it's it's written specifically not to be a critique but rather to give guidance to the department of health and human services about where we were at that time and where we needed to go so and and the language is very specific about that so i'm very disappointed because it's a solid report well-written, well-researched. And it's the kind of thing that you need periodically to tell you, uh, to give you some guidance on policy.
1: When the president was asked about firing the acting inspector general for the Pentagon, Glenn Fine, um, who was put in charge of overseeing coronavirus funding, he didn't answer the question. Were you as a member of Congress given any reason for the removal?
10: No. Um, and I don't think the uh, oversight committees were giving uh, a reason, but they will ask. Uh, the Senate has to approve IGs. They're nominated by the president, uh, but they were asked. And, and because of this independence of the IG, this is a particularly grievous uh, step by the president because they are the oversight in the departments. And it's extremely important that we protect their independence. I had a world-class uh, IG who I worked very well with. Some cabinet officers had more trouble with their IGs, but um, I enjoyed the working relationship and they gave us very good guidance. HHS has a wonderful experience um, and a wonderful depth in, professional, uh, in a professional office. Uh, I don't know the current IG. She was very junior when I was secretary but I'm sure she continues that tradition. And you could tell it from the report. There wasn't a political bone in anyone's body that worked on that report.
1: Mm. Congresswoman Shalala, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Um, also, in case you're wondering about, uh, I coughed. Uh, I have no symptoms. Uh, I have no reason to be concerned. Uh, I sometimes cough late at night uh, with some uh, asthma. Also, I coughed into my hand, and I have Purell right here. And I am cleaning my hand right now. I should have coughed into my sleeve. I apologize. Uh, Secretary, thank you. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you very much. Coming up, I'm going to talk to an intensive care nurse at one of New York City's hospitals who says going to work is like going to war. Symptoms
10: of overactive bladder, or OAB, may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans 40 years of age or older have reported symptoms of OAB. Oh, I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. It felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at OABmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirbegron.
8: Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat or tongue or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thiaridazine, melaril and melaril-S, flecainide, tambicure, propafenone, rhythmalt, digoxin, linoxin or solifenicin succinate, vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387.
10: Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at OABmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's OABmed.com.
1: As we reported at the top of the broadcast, New York City is reporting more than 800 new deaths, but statewide, the case count does appear to be flattening. At intensive care units across the city, nurses are, of course, on the front lines. One of them is Simone Hannah clark at Mount Sinai Hospital. She wrote in a recent New York Times op-ed that's going to work is like going to war. Here's an excerpt. Quote, my first task is to help with postmortem care on a COVID patient we just lost. We'd watched her slowly die over the past few days. We did everything we could just me and a nursing colleague in the room. It's a grim affair. We wrap the patient's body securely, stroking her brow and wishing her well on her next journey. Simone joins us now. Um, I, I was so stunned when I, when I read that. And I, I mean, I, it was just sort of sort of so tender and, and intimate. and um, And I know there's so much of it going on that it must be hard at times to uh to take moments like that um can you just talk a little bit about what you're seeing
4: yeah hi anderson um we're used to a certain level of chaos in the icu control chaos high acuity in our patients um we're used to seeing death but this is different it's you know more patients coming they just keep coming um there's no family around. It's just us. We're we're the only people in the hospital. No family. People are dying alone. Um, you know, we're donning and doffing multiple times a day our PPE. Um, you know, there's a high level of anxiety, but everybody is you know working
1: together. We're doing everything. It must be so scary, not just for, for doctors and nurses and, you know, X-ray technicians and, and uh, all the people who, you know, work in the hospital, the people who clean the floors, but also for the patients themselves, as you say, to not have a family member, a loved one by their bedside, kind of, you know, talking to doctors, helping them through it. It's just it's got to be there's so It's just got to be so terrifying. Yeah.
4: I mean, look, I see the sickest of the sick I see you. So a lot of times they are not even conscious, most of the time. Um, but you know they can probably still hear us. So you know, I talk to my patients. You know, we all do to reassure them that yeah, it must be terrifying. <laughs> no one should die.
7: But you do. You, just,
1: you talk to to the patients in the ICU even though though, though they're they're unconscious.
7: Yes. Yeah.
4: We'll talk to them. I mean, hearing is, is always the last sense to go. So we, we treat them like they can hear us. And, you know, I've had patients tell me who've woken up from drug induced tumors that they remember my voice and that they heard me. So I never it's assume t- they can. Hear me.
1: It's also a comfort for families to know that, to know that, you know, that, that you take the time to, to talk to them and, um, and speak to them. Even, you know, uh, I'm sure that's comforting for, for a lot of families.
4: I hope so, yeah. There's not a lot of comfort we can offer them right now. Um, You know, we're being good about updating uh, families every day uh, because that's the only way we can communicate. We try, we sometimes do FaceTime, but um, it's it's difficult with all the PPE and um, the converted rooms. uh, Negative pressure rooms are very loud. They have exhaust fans in them, so it's difficult to hear. But we do our best
1: you know you describe it as as a war zone and one of the things that you know so many service members talk about is the disparity between those who serve in their families and and the rest of society which there's also often a disconnect that people who don't have a loved one serving overseas or someone who who is serving overseas you know regular life Seems so incongruous to, to what they're experiencing, it must be the same for you. I mean, given what you're seeing and on every shift to then leave the hospital and not that regular life has continued for everybody else, but just, you know, to walk down a street where it's the sun is shining today. And yet there's no indication of what's happening behind those hospital doors.
4: Yeah, it's surreal. Like that's the only way to describe it. It is surreal. Yeah. We walk through those doors and we don't know if what today will bring, you know, what the day will bring, but, um, you know, every day it's more patience, it's more intense, and we are just snuffling down and putting our heads down and just doing what we need to do.
1: Well, thank you seems like a a, a very small phrase, but um, I... But thank you, and thank you for not only you but for for the efforts of everybody you work with, and and I extend that to uh, you know, UPS delivery people and the FedEx people and the you know folks working at Amazon and everybody who's making. Who's in this fight, and I really appreciate it. And um, stay strong. Thank you. Thank you, Simone Hannah Clark. Up next, one of those who tried for weeks to get tested get help when he fell sick. We remember a loving husband and a father of five. When we continue. Each night we take time to remember some of those who died during this pandemic, and tonight we want to remember 44-year-old Rolando Aravena. Sunny to his friends and family, he was a loving husband and attentive father of five children in New Windsor, New York. He leaves behind his oldest child, Amberly, who's 21 years old, Jaden, who's 17, Ethan, age 12, and his twins, Lola and Amira. Sonny died on the twins' 10th birthday. Joining me now is his wife, Melody. One of her daughters and her mom are now also fighting coronavirus. Melody, thanks for, for being with you. You're with uh, Amberly and, and Lola and Amira. I, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, tell me about your husband. H- how did you two meet?
7: Um, my husband loves to tell the story. He always tells everyone that I stalked him, but I saw him, <laughs> you at wedding. him. Yeah. <laughs> I attended a wedding um and he was there actually at that wedding and I saw him at that wedding, but um, we weren't formally introduced and a year later uh,
1: and, and he
7: was there.
1: And uh
3: that, t-
1: t- Tell, what, what was it about him that, that uh, made you want to, uh, to to follow up? I won't say stalk, but to follow up.
7: <laughs> he's, he's just, you can tell you, was a good guy, and he's very handsome, tall, and, you know, just very good-looking and very well-dressed. Um, so,
1: you know, those were the things that
7: attracted me to him. So when I saw him a year later, I took the opportunity to go and see him
1: And I understand he he was doing some work at at a hospital in New York City, and that's when he started showing some symptoms?
7: No, he started showing symptoms a week after. uh, uh, And then on March 19th, uh, that's when he started showing symptoms.
1: That's when he started showing symptoms. Was, Was he admitted to the hospital then? Was he able to get tested?
7: No, we actually called the... COVID hotline, and he was on hold for like five hours, and I was on hold on my phone for like four hours before we even get through twenty-one, and then we
1: gained an appointment for COVID. And how is your? How is? Uh, is it Lola who's who's positive? Your um, uh, Amberly is by your side, and so is Amira. Is it Lola who's in the back there with the mask on?
7: Yeah, that's Lola.
1: Hey Lola, how how's she feeling? She's
7: actually feeling well, and um, so she gave in a thumbs
1: option. up. Mm. Um, like what what else do you want people to know about Sonny?
7: I want everyone to know that my husband was a selfless man, and that. Him. In that he loved everyone and he cared for everyone and he gave anything for his family for his kids for strangers. Uh, he most of his free time at the Boys and Girls Club to mentor boys. Um, he coached for the AAU team. He let everybody to know that he was a great cook. He was the cook in the house. He was amazing, and he was- that
1: husband, my soulmate and my father. Well, Melody, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, and and I know it seems overwhelming now. Um, and, and you've got your beautiful kids with you, and you're, you're in our thoughts and our prayers. And um, if there's anything we can do for you, please, please let us know. Um, and I just I wish you the best, and and I hope Lola, I'm glad Lola's feeling feeling better. Um, I hope that continues. I hope your mom gets better, um, and, and we'll keep in touch. And I, I just I I wish you continued strength and peace in the days ahead. Thank you so
7: much.
1: Thank you for sharing this story. Yeah, I'm sad I didn't get to meet him, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell us uh, about him. He sounds like an amazing guy. Um, and he was very blessed to have to have you and to have all those to have all your kids. It's uh, quite a legacy. Thank you so much. I want to uh, go over to Chris, uh, who's standing by for Cuomo Prime Time. Chris, it's uh, it's a tough day.